0: Well, I was um, mapping out uh, what it would look like to finish the book of Matthew, and uh, I noted that if I divide up chapters 26, yeah, 27, 28, uh, that would put us preaching the resurrection about three weeks before Easter. So I thought to myself, that's probably not a good idea. Might as well just Tick that up a little bit. So, we actually preach the resurrection on Easter, which I thought would be a wonderful way to sort of culminate uh, our tour through the book of Matthew. But that left me with a little bit of a, a question. What would we be preaching uh, for three weeks? And I thought, well, why don't we take a small book of the Bible that I can preach completely through in three weeks and take a look at that? And so, that's what we will be doing over the next three weeks. We'll be looking at the book of Jude. Uh, this week we're looking at verses one through four. Uh, Jude is only one chapter long, and if you're still not there yet, just go to Revelation and go left. It's it's right, right before the book of Revelation. Hear the word of the Lord, Jude. A servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we've just sung praying that you would speak to us from your holy word. And now we come before the preaching of your word and we ask again, God, that you by the power of your Holy Spirit would open our minds to see what it is that you are saying in this text, that we, that we might be moved to worship you and to glorify you for your greatness and your might and your wisdom, for your condescension to our need and our weakness and our frailty, God. Please speak to us through this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, last week um, when Pastor Zach was here with us, he, he mentioned this document called the Fiducia Supplicans. Uh, put out by Pope Francis recently, where he invited couples who are in what he calls irregular relationships or irregular situations or same-sex couples uh, to come to the Catholic Church to receive a blessing, if that is what they would desire. And as Zach mentioned, uh, this is big news because of how public and influential the Pope is in the world as a representative of not only Roman Catholicism, but all of Christianity. Because if even the Pope now has opened up the Catholic Church to be a place that will bless people who are in sexual relationships outside of marriage, all of the sudden people who do not want to bless those kinds of relationships will begin to look more and more strange in the eyes of a watching world. And I imagine because of the Pope's influence, it could bring doubt to you on the topic. Is the Pope right? Should the Christian church be a place that's willing to not only welcome couples who are in irregular relationships, but to bless them as they continue to live in those relationships? Or is the Christian church supposed to be a place that teaches a person they must repent of their irregular relationship as part of what it means to enjoy the blessings of a relationship with Jesus Christ? That is the question of our time, friends. And this kind of question is not new. In fact, this kind of question is exactly what scripture tells us to expect. And Jude is writing so that we know exactly how to think about these kinds of questions. So we know exactly what to do when these kinds of questions come up. And why it is so important to do what Jude is going to urge us to do this morning. So if we, so as we unpack the first four verses of this letter from Jude this morning, first, we're going to look at the greeting that, that Jude offers to his readers, followed by the purpose Jude gives for writing this letter. And finally, the circumstance that led him to write this letter. So first, the greeting. I don't know about you, but uh, I tend to kind of overlook the greetings in a letter in the New Testament as I'm reading through the Bible, and that has a lot to do with the fact that they seem disconnected from whatever the letter writer is about to say afterwards, and because it's disconnected, it doesn't seem to be quite as important, but these greetings actually are significant, and especially in this letter. Uh, The greeting is deeply connected to what Jude is going to say next. In fact, it's a necessary reminder and foundation for everything that Jude is going to say in this letter. So Jude's greeting follows the common first century letter writing format. First, he introduces himself. Then he acknowledges the recipients of his letter. And then he offers a word of encouragement and blessing for them. And so as he introduces himself, he does so as Jude a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now Jude was a very common first century Jewish name. And so Jude is writing to a letter to people and it will probably be circulated amongst a number of different churches. And so he identifies himself also as the brother of James. Now at this time at the church, the the most prominent person named James in the church, the most recognizable James, would have been Jesus's brother, James. Also the leader of the Jerusalem church. Also the writer of the letter of James that we have in our New Testaments. But if James is the brother of Jesus and Jude is the brother of James, that would make Jude also the brother of Jesus. And what makes us even more sure that Jude is the brother of Jesus is because in Mark chapter 6, where Mark records the crowds talking about Jesus and wondering about him, he writes this, And this is the voice of the crowds speaking. They say, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas? Now it says Judas here, but in Greek, it's the exact same word, Judas and Jude. It's spelled the same way, everything. Likely the reason that we call Jude, the letter to Jude Jude instead of Judas is to um, differentiate Jude from another infamous Judas who betrayed Jesus. And so he's the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. That's who Jesus is. So why wouldn't Jude just come out and say that he's the brother of Jesus? Well, probably for the same reason that James never calls himself the brother of Jesus. It's actually Paul in Galatians chapter one who tells us that James is the brother of Jesus. And that's out of just pure humility. But another reason that Jude doesn't mention that he's Jesus's brother is because his primary relationship to Jesus is as his servant. Jude is first and foremost a servant of Jesus Christ. And as we've mentioned before, this word servant is actually the Greek word doulos, which means slave. In our context, and for good reason, we tend to uh, translate this word as servant instead of slave to sort of domesticate it a little bit with all the connotations the word slave has. But this is the word slave, which means Jesus owns Jude body and soul. There's nothing Jesus cannot ask of him. Jesus is Jude's master and commander and Lord. Lord. Jesus rules Jude by his word and through the power of his Holy Spirit. That's that's everything that Jude wants us to know by calling himself a servant of Jesus Christ. And only the Son of the living God could bring a man to think about his own brother this way. Do you think of Jesus this way? Is he your king? who rules you by his word in spite of what you might think or feel, who shapes your feelings and thoughts through the words of scripture? Or are his commands and teachings optional and subject to change because of whatever might seem right to us? Next, Jude addresses those he's writing to as those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. To be called means to be chosen by God and then at some point in time, called into a saving relationship with him. Calvin says that calling is the effect of eternal election. We don't deserve this call. There's nothing in us or about us that has earned the right to receive this call. There's no way though, once we receive this call, that we would ever resist it. When God calls us like this, he opens our eyes to his goodness and his glory and to our sinfulness. He opens our eyes to his love for sinners and all that he's done for us in Christ. And once that happens, once we've been given eyes to see the misery of sin and the beauty of God, we come to him. We just, we just do we could not choose otherwise like a man on death row who receives a pardon at the 11th hour. We will leave the city of destruction and follow the way no matter the cost all the way to the celestial city once we receive this call. But we're not just called. We're loved by God with a love that we didn't earn or deserve either. He, he chooses us because he loves us or he loves us. And so then he chooses us And he calls us because he loves us. And so that we can know and experience his love for us. The identity of every Christian is as someone who is beloved in God, the father and kept for Jesus Christ. He keeps us all the way through this life until the end for his son. Now, The fact that he has to keep us means there's real danger that we need to be kept from. He has to keep us because we are sinful, weak, and foolish. He has to keep us because our faith is under assault. He has to keep us because every day we're bombarded with lies about who God is, what sin is, what salvation is, what Jesus even saved us for. And not only that, but we're bombarded with lies about how to live our lives in response to all of that. What is sin, really? What is righteousness? What is grace? What does it mean, really, if someone who professes to be a Christian knowingly and willingly and consistently gives himself over to a life of sin? At some point, our answer to this question or answers to these questions leads us to God and salvation. And at some point, our answer to these questions leads us into danger. And that's what this letter is about. Which is why from the beginning, Jude wants us to know that in the face of the threat he's about to describe, God is keeping us for his son. Even though sin and temptation and deceit and doubts might rage inside our hearts, even throughout our whole lives. God is the one exerting his power to keep us for his son because he loves us and because he's called us. And that is so comforting. But in this letter, we also see how God keeps us for Jesus Christ. You see, he keeps us by writing letters for us, like Jude, where he urges us to keep ourselves in the love of God. You see, in order to persevere to the end as Christians, in order to be kept by God, we must keep ourselves in the love of God. Now, some would say, that's not right. But look at verse 21, where Jude commands us, Keep yourselves in the love of God. You see, Jude is writing this letter to plead with us about the real threats and dangers to our faith, and that if we don't contend for this faith, we can be swept away into destruction along with the false teachers who've snuck into the church. Now, before we get into all of that, though, that's our next point. Jude offers this blessing. He says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Mercy is for those who deserve judgment. And Jude wants us to know mercy multiplied, which means he wants us to more and more understand the depths of our sin and the holiness of God and the judgment we deserve and the fact that God showed us mercy in that. And the more we appreciate the fact that we've been shown mercy, the more we understand how wonderful it is to have peace with him. We were once enemies and rebels to his throne under his wrath and condemnation. But now we have peace through the blood of Jesus Christ. We're sons and daughters. And Jude wants us to know that peace in abundance as well. And on top of mercy and peace, Jude wants us to know God's love for us. He wants us to experience God's love for us. He wants us to know love with each other. And we will return to these wonderful truths from this introduction as we go through the letter. But next, Jude launches into the purpose for this letter. No one ever sits down to write a letter without having a purpose in mind. There's an end goal that they would like to achieve and Jude is no different. He has a clear purpose in mind. But before he tells us his purpose, for some reason, he tells us that he's not writing the letter that he intended to write. He says, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, the word beloved is a word that fathers use for their children. And the church adopted and embraced this word and church leaders use it for those that they've been called to serve, which means Jude isn't writing to random people. He's writing to people he knows and loves. Some scholars suggest that the churches this letter is going to are all churches that Jude personally ministered to himself. And he wanted to write a letter to them basking in the glorious salvation they all share because of everything that God has done to save them, everything that Christ has done, everything that God in Christ through his spirit is doing right now, all the wonderful hopes they have for the future in God. Just like you, when you come here on Sunday mornings, you want to hear a sermon like that about all of those wonderful things as well. That's what Jude wanted to write about, but he can't because he loves them. He has to write a completely different letter than the one he wanted to write. Instead, he says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So the purpose and the goal of this letter is to stir up his readers to contend for the faith. And he appeals to them to do this. This word appealing can also mean to urge and exhort. So it's more than just appealing. It's not just pleading with them, hoping they'll respond to this letter by contending for the faith. No, this this is of the utmost importance. He's urging them to do that. He's pressing them and pushing them to do this. He wants them to feel the weight of necessity that he feels for them to do this. This isn't like the appeal that you make to your child to get his grades up. As important as that is, this is more like the appeal you make to someone who's inside a building that's on fire. Which means contending for the faith is not a suggestion. The word contending is the word ep agonizomai. Do you hear an English word in the middle of that word? Ep agonizomai. Jude is urging them to agonize for the faith. This is a word that comes from athletics. Jude is calling us to think about the effort and agony athletes experience as they train and perform. But there's more to this word than calling us to the intense struggle of contending for the faith. The Greek lexicon adds this. It says, this is the effort expended by the subject and a noble cause, giving expression to the ideal of dedication to the welfare of the larger group. So you're not agonizing for your own glory like an athlete would. We're agonizing for the most noble cause imaginable for the good of others. Because if we don't contend for the faith in our generation, there will not be a faith in the next generation. The word faith is used in different ways throughout the New Testament. Sometimes it's a verb describing what we do in believing. Sometimes it's a noun describing this thing called faith that God gives us so that we can believe. Other times we talk about what faith does and how it creates within us a heart that truly does value Christ above all else. But here, Jude is using this word to describe a set of beliefs and behaviors that make up the Christian faith. When Jude says the faith, he's talking about doctrine. He means the teaching of the apostles, which includes both what we have to know in order to be a Christian and how we're supposed to live as Christians. The faith is pointing to how we think and how we act. And Jude is saying that as of the writing of this letter, the faith is complete and final. It has been delivered to the saints, which means holy ones, just another way of talking about Christians. God has handed over this faith through the revelation of his son, taking on flesh, becoming human. He's established the faith on the foundation of the apostles and prophets who wrote the Bible. And what Jude is saying is that everything we need to know and believe and all the ways we're supposed to live in light of that revelation, that's all been received as of the moment of him writing this letter. Now that doesn't mean that Jude is the very last letter ever written in the New Testament. It just means that the Christian faith was clearly defined at this point in time. That's why John can write to the church and say this, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The faith, the teaching of Christ was known to them at this time so clearly that they were able to know who has God and who doesn't based on that teaching. At the earliest stage of the church in the book of Acts, Luke reports this. He says, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Notice Luke says, obedient to the faith. That's because the doctrines of the Christian faith include both how we are to think and how we are to live. Listen to Paul in 1 Timothy. He says, the law is for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. All of these sins, Paul says, are contrary to sound doctrine. They are contrary to the faith. When we become obedient to the faith, we turn from this way of life and embrace a completely new life offered to us in Christ. So the purpose and goal of Jude's letter is to urge his readers to agonize and struggle and contend for this faith, which gives shape to how a Christian must live and think. And Next, Jude is gonna tell us about the circumstances or the situation that has come about that made it necessary for Jude to write a letter urging those he loves to contend for the faith. But before we look at our last point, I do want to address a question that might be in your head right now. So Jude just said that the contours and the shape and the beliefs and behaviors that make up the Christian faith were completely delivered to the saints at this time the time when he wrote the letter. And if that's true, how do we explain all the divisions and disagreements and factions and splits and denominations within Christianity over the last 2,000 years? If it's true that the faith has been delivered to the church beginning in the first century why can no one seem to agree on what the faith is now? Isn't our problem now that we have too many people contending for too many different versions of the faith? Isn't the thing we need now to to not be so divisive and to try to welcome as many ideas to the table as possible? And the answer that Jude gives to that question is a resounding no. That's the total opposite of why Jude is writing this letter. Jude is writing to encourage us to do the work. He's writing so that we will agonize over the doctrines of our faith. Washing our hands and giving up and saying, who can even know? That's exactly what Jude is trying to keep us from doing. I would say that the reason we have so many divisions is because we stopped contending for the faith and we started following charismatic leaders or familiar traditions instead of doing the hard work ourselves to contend for the faith. And the truth is, beloved, if you contend for the faith, what you're going to find in spite of all the differences, is remarkable continuity. Yes, there are differences and disagreements and divisions, but for churches and denominations that remain true churches, promoting the true faith, once for all delivered to the saints, what you will find is a kind of unity of teaching and practice over the last 2,000 years that will cause you to fall down and worship the God who has kept his people for Jesus Christ for 2,000 years. There is one God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is one message of good news for sinners. There is sin and righteousness and freedom. Sin is the path to hell. Righteousness is the path to life. And God gives righteousness to people out of free grace. And the only way we will be able to see this continuity of faith over time is if we do the work ourselves to contend for the faith. You can sit back and trust me if you want. I think that would be a good thing. But then you'll have no way of knowing whether you should believe me or someone else you trust that says something different than I do, that sounds right to you too. And Jude is appealing to us to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, because your life, the life of this world, the life of those you love depends on it. Finally, the circumstance that led to him writing this letter. So Jude's greeted his recipients. He's told us why he's writing this letter. And now he's going to tell us the occasion that made it necessary for him to write this letter instead of the one that he wanted to write. He says this, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So here's the situation. Certain certain people, which is a way of referring to people everybody knows about, but Jude is choosing not to name. Certain people have crept in unnoticed. That word crept in unnoticed is a word that basically means snuck in. They know they don't hold to the faith once for all delivered to the saints, and they're intentionally sneaking into the church to undermine it. More than likely, these certain people think they're doing something noble. They think they're bringing enlightenment. They think they're bringing a better understanding, a truer understanding of God's grace. And they have to sneak in because all the unenlightened people wouldn't accept them if they were open with their message. All of those backwoods, backwater people who believe every word of the Bible is true. but Jude says they're perverting the grace of God. The word pervert here means to change or alter. They want to change the church's understanding of the grace of God. They want to define grace as something that frees people to indulge in sensuality, which is a word that specifically refers to sexual sin. But God's word teaches us that grace is something that frees us from sin. Grace is something that meets us in our selfishness and pride and fear and lust and offers us forgiveness and welcome in spite of what we've done, in spite of what we've become, in spite of what we deserve. And then when we receive God's grace, it transforms us into something completely different. Paul writes this to Titus. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. See, grace isn't a license to sensuality, it's freedom from sensuality. Grace trains us to renounce sensuality. But these people, have snuck into the church. They've perverted or altered or changed a core doctrine of the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. And the result of their changing that doctrine is that they're teaching people it's okay to indulge in sexual sin. Whoa, doesn't this sound very much like the world we live in right now? And Jude tells us that long ago, these certain people were designated for condemnation, which means God planned for there to be false teachers in the church to test our faith and force us to contend for it. And he planned for them to receive judgment and condemnation for what they're doing because they are ungodly, which just means they're irreverent and wicked. They do not fear God. And in so doing, they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And it would be really hard to sneak into the church and openly deny Jesus. So, what's happening here is more like what Paul says in Titus about false teachers when he says, They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They snuck in, they profess Christ, they act as if they're part of us, but they're denying Jesus is their master and Lord by simply not living or teaching others to live as our master and Lord Jesus Christ commands us to live. They're denying Jesus by ignoring his word. So, getting back to the recent declaration from Pope Francis inviting couples and irregular or same-sex relationships to come to the church for a blessing. According to Jude, that's either a false teaching that perverts the grace of God into a license for immorality, making the Pope a false teacher who long ago was designated for condemnation that he's storing up for himself, or it's a fitting blessing of grace within the faith once for all delivered to the saints. There can be no in-between. which means we don't have the option to throw up our hands and say, oh, well, who can possibly know? We must take heed to Jude's appeal and we must agonize over this each and every single one of us. We need to know whether our friends and family members who are in irregular or same-sex relationships are people we must plead with to repent and believe in Jesus Christ in order to obtain God's blessing. Or if they are people who just need to receive a blessing from the church in the midst of their irregular situation. And we need to know this for our own struggle with sin and temptation. Is grace freedom to give ourselves over to it again without fear or is grace the confidence and the power that we need to be free from it? Jude isn't writing to just pastors and elders urging them to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. No, he's writing to you, Christian. He's writing to everyone who is called by the Holy Spirit, beloved in God and being kept for Jesus Christ. Because our willingness to contend for the faith is the way he keeps us. He wants us all to know God's mercy and peace and love multiplied to us. And as we contend for the faith, guess what happens? We come to understand his mercy and his peace and his love multiplied to us. By rolling up our sleeves and learning this faith so well that we can contend for it. So well that we can tell the difference between a false teacher and a true teacher. So well that we can begin to see the contours of this faith well enough that we're not paralyzed by the apparent differences between true Christian churches and denominations, but we can see the beautiful sameness among all true churches over the last 2,000 years. So we know who to embrace and who to call out as an ungodly false teacher who's under God's condemnation for perverting God's grace and denying our master and Lord. You see, it seems unloving to us in our current culture to do this. It seems unloving to us to call out somebody and say, you are a false teacher, you're under God's condemnation, you're perverting the grace of God and you're denying Jesus. But what's unloving, my friends, is not to do that and to let them pervert the grace and to let the faith be watered down to where it's nothing. If we have such a narrow view of the faith, and we call everyone a false teacher, we will divide the true church. So that's not good either. But if we can't call anyone a false teacher, then we have no church. And all of us are called to contend for the faith so that we can know the difference. Because you shouldn't even trust me. without checking for yourselves what I'm teaching you. According to Jude, we are all responsible to know this faith well enough so we can recognize if I deviate from the truth. We should all be like the Bereans in the book of Acts who want to confirm every teaching with the word of God. Beloved, the Pope, And those like him, especially within our denomination are either right or wrong about these things. But Jude wants us to know that heaven and hell hang in the balance and we must contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So I'd like to invite you to adult Sunday school next week. I'd like to invite you to join with other believers in this congregation and study this. Pick up J.I. Packer's Knowing God and read it. Pick up Calvin's Institutes and read it. This is infinitely more important than anything else we can be doing. We need to know this faith. And I promise you, it will not be an unfruitful exercise. Join with us in the Bible reading plan this year. It's not too late. I free you to pick up where we are starting Monday. <laughs> Don't worry about reading what you may have missed. As you can tell, I'm very passionate about this because I believe that we need, that we need this, especially now, more than previous generations. In fact, I would say, and I'm gonna repeat what I said earlier, all the factions and fractions that we see now is because of theological ignorance. People don't know what's true, so they're following every teaching that seems right to them. And that's what's producing all of the divisions. But when we study this, when we see the glory of God on the pages of scripture, when you read the catechism and say, yes, that has withstood the time for 500 years because it accurately represents what the scriptures teach. That is what unifies us. And that's what we long for, but we have to contend for the faith to have it, each and every one of us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we ask that you would give us great zeal, out of love for our own souls, out of love for our neighbor and out of love for you to contend for this faith, to know it, to learn its shapes and contours, to see how you have revealed yourself to us in a supernatural book, a book which every word is true, a book that we can trust to save our lives. I pray, Father, that we would experience the joy of giving ourselves to this task and seeing your glory, basking in your mercy, knowing your peace and experiencing your love. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.